You appeared on, I'm going to list them, Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, ABC's Nightline, Good Morning America Weekend, CBS's 60 Minutes, and Sunday Morning with Charles Osgood, NBC's Today Show, and Weekend Today, BBC and CNN Documentaries. So you've been all over the TV broadcasting map. What major message do you hope you were able to convey in just such a broad swath of appearances? The overarching thing is the impact of technology on society. The way new technologies are adopted and the legal and social issues that they raise. And you know, the thing about cyber traps is at some point you need to have a relatively good focus in order to having a group of professionals who will call upon you for work. The broader books that I do, like The Decency Wars or American Privacy or things like that, are my efforts to educate about these bigger issues in a more general fashion. That brings us back to the rise of the digital mob. Welcome back to the podcast, Big Ideas in Small Windows. My name is Mike Gasco. I'm your host, and it's a pleasure to have Frederick Lane on as my guest. Frederick started as a lawyer, has authored 10 books, and has turned to educational consulting. His most notable work is being an author of several books on cyber traps, and he collaborates on his Cyber Traps podcast show along with podcaster Jethro Jones. He has a new book coming out, The Rise of the Digital Mob. You got to read this. He's an expert witness on cyber issues, has co-founded the Center for Cyber Ethics and writes the Cyber Traps newsletter. And if that weren't enough, he's an international speaker having appeared on the Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, ABC's Nightline, and Good Morning America Weekend, CBS's 60 Minutes and Sunday Morning with Charles Osgood, NBC's Today Show, Weekend Today BBC, and CNN Documentaries. You have to listen to my next guest as he reveals a wealth of knowledge to help families, educators, and most importantly, students, not only to survive, but thrive in the social media world that exists today. Welcome to my podcast, Big Ideas in Small Windows. I'm here with Frederick Lane. It's such a pleasure to have you here with me. And you have an interesting trajectory in education. You started as a lawyer, then you decided, why not author 10 books? And then you turn this to educational consulting. I got to know, can you tell my audience how you arrived at education following and during a legal career? Yeah, well, this is a a 30-year journey that's obviously still going on. But yeah, I started off uh, practicing law up in the state of Vermont and uh, made the mistake from my perspective of going into insurance defense, which turned out to be (laughs) a little bit of a soul-sucking enterprise. And in the course of that work, I ended up doing a fair amount of computer consulting because I've actually been working with computers since I was in fourth grade. So we're talking way back, Digital Equipment Corporation, card readers, paper tape, all of that good stuff. That led me in the mid-90s to the idea of writing a book about the Communications Decency Act, which Congress passed because it was freaking out about online adult materials. And there was a big time cover story about it that was wildly overblown and all the rest of it. But Congress dove in and passed the Communications Decency Act because they were trying to make the transmission of indecent material a federal crime. 
The only problem being, of course, that indecency is not the legal standard for how we judge sexually oriented speech. So the law was wildly unconstitutional and actually was probably the last nine to nothing decision related to pornography that the Supreme Court has ever issued because they said a year later, this is ridiculous. You can't do this. So I put together a book proposal um, originally titled, What's That Computer Doing Under Your Mattress? Which I thought was just <laughs> the greatest thing for parents. But it wound up becoming a book called Obscene Profits, The Entrepreneurs of, of Pornography in the Cyber Age. And that came out in 2000. And that was my first mainstream book. That led me to an observation that a lot of the consumption of online adult materials was actually occurring in the workplace in the late 90s and early 2000s because businesses had the only decent bandwidth back then and they hadn't really caught up to the whole filtering and blocking software. But that inspired me to write The Naked Employee. And that was about workplace surveillance efforts. Over the years, I wrote a bunch of other mainstream books about the impact of technology on society. And then in 2010, I got the idea to write a book called Cyber Traps for the Young. But it was really trying to help parents understand, because the iPhone had just come out three years before, that already kids were using these powerful devices to get into trouble that they could not have easily gotten into before. And that there were a bunch of social issues that were arising that parents needed to be aware of. Um, so that book is still out there. And that led me to write Cyber Traps for Educators because so many of the uh, cyber traps that I observed involved kids and teachers. And so it was an obvious next step to say to teachers, hey, you're using these devices they're the same things that the kids are using. That's causing you problems. And here are what the problems are. And because that work has gone reasonably well, I prioritized updating Cybertraps for Educators to version 2.0. And now I'm working on the third edition for later this year. Yeah, I saw that. You have 10 books total, as I mentioned. And by the way, just an interesting side note, one and a half percent of Americans publish a book and you've published 10 and you're on your way to this, this new one. It's amazing. You just keep writing and it's such an ethical and important message. So I would definitely want to get into that with you about it. The new book you have coming out is called The Rise of the Digital Mob. Can you give some background about what this is about and, and how it can be useful to readers? This is, a, a, this is an emotional and intellectual challenge, honestly, Mike, to do this. The origin of this idea actually goes back about five years ago to the Boston Marathon bombing. I was observing the crowdsourced investigation that took place. And I'm from Boston. I was born there. I've run the Boston Marathon a couple of times. It was very personal to me. So this was something I was really paying attention to. And the intensity with which the crowd tried to investigate what took place researching the, the pots that were used in the backpack, the style of backpack, all the rest of it. And some of the work that they did was good, but they also misidentified one of the suspects. And there was no connection between that misidentification and what happened, but 
it later turned out that the person they identified had been missing for some time and was found dead in the Charles River. Um, nothing related to any of this, but still causing his family a great deal of anguish. So I um, have worked with Beacon Press um, on a couple of the other books that I've written. And I went back to them and I said, you know, I'd like to do this book, The Rise of the Digital Mob, because we're seeing some real changes in how people behave. The problem that has arisen for me as a writer, Mike, is that subsequently other kinds of mob activity have arisen in part because of the 2016 election and the rise of social media, the influence of foreign bots on our culture, the political divisions that have exploded. So it, it's a little bit like I, I jumped into the river and all of a sudden I'm grappling with a python that is fighting mm -hmm. back. And that's literally how this book feels. But the goal is really to try to help people understand how we went from this sort of um, idealistic version of the internet in the 60s and 70s, where this was going to set us free. We were going to have access to the world's information. We were going to communicate. We we're gonna break down the Tower of Babel and, and be able to talk globally. And it's turned out to be a disaster. <laughs> You know, in terms of the role that social media plays in antagonizing people. I mean, you know this from the work that you do. So what I want to help people understand is the history of that process and maybe offer some suggestions about what we can do to dial it back a bit. I think it's a great way to approach it because if we're digging back into the history, we can understand where the problem originated from and then start to rectify that challenge. We can try. It really stems from two parallel developments in the late 1970s. Uh, I don't know if you recall Usenet uh, from your early college days, but you know those were online discussion boards and they developed the concept of flame wars where people were shouting at each other in all caps and uh, the concept of trolling emerged from that, this idea that each year when new people came onto the school campus, the old hands, the juniors and seniors would post annoying messages in Usenet specifically to get the freshmen all riled up and have them <laughs> you know, lose their cool on Usenet. Always picking on the freshmen. <laughs> Always, absolutely. But now the other, the other invention that I think we underestimate in terms of its impact on our society is the computer bulletin board from the late 1970s. Literally, and I'm, I'm looking out my window here in New York and it's snowing, literally because of a snowstorm in Chicago, two computer geeks put together the first computer bulletin board. And within years, there were tens of thousands of bulletin boards across the United States. And one of the anecdotes that I have in this book is about how one of the first um, one of the first bulletin boards set up in West Virginia was by a neo-Nazi publisher. Mm. And he specifically told a Pittsburgh newspaper that the real advantage from his perspective was that he could reach the kids. Wow, that's scary. It is. It's in the cloud of circumstances that has changed our country. Sure. And 
I'm definitely dating myself by saying, yes, I do remember Usenet in college. Well, I was on before Usenet. So there you go. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll take that. You also have a podcast, the Cyber Traps podcast. Can you tell us how this ties into your work and your writing? One of the things that's been absolutely terrific about working in the educational field is I've had the chance to meet so many educators. And I um, actually 10 years ago, this is the 10th anniversary of my first trip to Alaska, to the Alaska Society for Technology and Education. And I'm actually going back there next Friday for their latest conference. One of the people I met up there was Jethro Jones, who runs a long running podcast called The Transformative Principle. I think he's up over 420 episodes at this point, something ridiculous like 460 that. something uh, by the time I this comes even, out. <laughs> right. I can't even keep track. And a million so, downloads. <laughs> it's just amazing. Well, I, I, and I'm honored that when I got Cybertraps for Educators 2.0 out in the market and let people know, he gave me a call and said, you know, I've been looking for another project. What do you think about doing a podcast built around Cybertraps? And it took me all of three seconds to say, <laughs> wow, that's a great idea. Striking a nerve. <laughs> I'm much happier doing the research that feeds the podcast, whereas Jethro is the tech guru. So, And yeah, of course, you know, a former principal, so he's got all of his own frontline experience. That's a great marriage, though. And talk about you coming from the law background and your writing and then him coming from his many episodes of hit tapping the great minds in education and being able to come together to really develop a, a worthy product to hopefully offer, you know, the cyber ethics and the cyber traps series. You, I think you mentioned you have three of those and a lot of this ties right back into your legal support and cyber issues. Can you tell us about your work in this area where you've provided legal consult? I think you've even uh, been in court. Well, I've done, you know, I've done expert witness work in a couple of different areas. Um, certainly have done uh, some for instances of, you know, misconduct to a large extent dealing actually with online adult materials. I've been certified by the Department of Defense as an expert and that kind of thing. This is, you know, security implications for that. And I've also done computer forensics for about 20 years. Um, the educational consulting that I do definitely arises out of the combination of legal and cyber traps work where, you know, I do a lot of professional development lectures. You know, these are the kinds of things I'm doing uh, in Alaska. I did a series of them for the Hawaii State Teachers Association last week, uh, departments of education, that kind of thing, where I'll go in and I'll put together presentations and so forth on the cyber traps issues. And I will sometimes also sit down with administrators and go over, for instance, their acceptable use policies and their um, policies and procedures for responding to different kinds of events. You know, obviously making it very clear that I'm doing it as a legally informed consultant and not as an attorney, uh, which is an important distinction. But you know, the information is still valid and obviously they then can have a chance to run it past their school attorney. That's a great resource. Can you tell me what the function of the Center for Cyber Ethics is? Well, again, you know, when you get two podcasters together like Jethro and I, it's not like we ever stop talking. <laughs> so, so at some point, we are basically being to take the cyber traps work that I've been doing and create a corporation 
that could accept donations and receive grants to basically make my work more available across the country, either at vastly reduced cost or for free, which is really the goal of the center. We just got certified, we just got the IRS certification in January, which was a real step up. And now eventually move my work entirely into the Center for Cyber Ethics. And, you know, I'm excited about that because it would give it a life beyond me, which is really what I want to have happen. Right now, you know, the Cybertrap stuff is a bunch of files on my computer, but it's something that should be perpetuated because these issues will not go away. You're going to be teaching at some point in the metaverse, and there are going to be all of these Cybertraps issues that will arise that are both overlapping what is going on now, but then in some cases unique to that particular medium. So we're going to have to be uh, hopefully forward-looking in terms of how we deal with these things. Yeah, and I think some of that is even your almost streaming conscience through your Cybertraps newsletter, right? You have this newsletter that comes out periodically, <laughs> and yep. that's just another one of those resources you've added so that if we're not waiting every other year or whatever for more information. Why not just go to the Cyber Traps newsletter and get some right. more information there? So you're just funneling all this information in podcasts and newsletters and your books and, and your speaking commitments. Speaking of which, you were yes. very humble earlier and said, well, I met with some decent success, yet you appeared on, I'm going to list them for you, ready? You were on Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, ABC's Nightline, Good Morning America Weekend, CBS's 60 Minutes, and Sunday Morning with Charles Osgood, NBC's Today Show, and Weekend Today, and I'm not finished, BBC and CNN documentaries. So you've been all over the broadcasting, TV broadcasting map as well. What major message do you hope was you were able to convey in just such a broad swath of appearances? It was really interesting, honestly, Mike. I would say that those appearances would deal with different books that I had written. Um, you know, for instance, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, which honestly, I swear, if I just put that on my gravestone, that's kind of done. You know? <laughs> that one was because of the cover to my book, The Decency Wars, which was inspired by the Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake halftime show. Um, uh -huh. And trying to understand why CBS got hit with a half million dollar fine the next morning for something that lasted less than half of a second. So there were great stories coming out of that about the long running efforts to quote unquote, clean up America. But, you know, John Stewart sees a cover like that and the topic is right up his alley. So we grabbed it and that was a real, uh, a real boost. Um, other, other topics have dealt with, you know, the workplace privacy, the student privacy. The overarching theme is the impact of technology on society. The way new technologies are adopted and the legal and social issues that they raise. And you know, the thing about cyber traps is at some point you need to have a relatively good focus in order to having a group of professionals who will call upon you for work. But the broader books that I do like the Decency Wars or American Privacy or things like that are my efforts to educate about these bigger issues in a more general fashion. And obviously that brings us back to the rise of the digital mob. And there's a second book in that contract, which is called Hashtag Tech Masculinity, oh. which is going to be about the impact of technology on men and maleness. And um, again, we'll see what we can sort out. 
Well, and you talked about speaking a number of times. You're, you are an international speaker. And so mm-hmm. you've also been able to take this on the road. And I, I didn't quite get earlier. Did you actually get to go to Hawaii or were you online? Because I hope you went to Hawaii. Oh, <laughs> last week I was online, but I've gone to Hawaii, I think, three times now. I've lectured in China, Canada, and France, and will probably be going to Ghana in September to work with Child Online Africa and a bunch of other telecommunication uh, concerns on cyber safety for an emerging, really an emerging continent in many ways. I think what's exciting about your work, and I know you've, you've talked with such humility throughout and it's part of your persona, yet you're getting the word out and we can't minimize that. We have to say that you know, Frederick is making clear that number one, this is a problem and, and half the battle's awareness. And then number two, okay, maybe there aren't perfect solutions, but let's explore some and see what can work. So I, I just want to let you know that that's something that as a fellow educator that's very interested in cyber issues, that's very appreciated and valued. Well, it's, it's very gracious of you to say, Mike, I think that at the end of the day, there are literally thousands of people working on these issues, and I'm just one of them. And then the other thing, too, is that, you know, it is an ongoing battle. I mean, this stuff moves so quickly and issues come at us so fast that, uh, you know, we we owe it to the kids as much as anything else to try to educate them and create an environment where they can grow up safely, respected, um, hopefully in a, a good functioning society. And that's one of the things I'm a little bit concerned about these days. And it, it helps to fuel the work that I'm doing. I agree with you. The digital disruptions that kids face today mm-hmm. are nothing I could fathom as a child. I mean, we had long, boring, hot summer days. And interestingly, those are the, some of the moments when you can generate some of the most creativity. We would build tree houses and you know, fit, learn how to fish and things that uh, I think kids are, are not getting as many opportunities at. Now, granted, they are seeing some positive uh, opportunities online to help learn how to build some things, but we need to think about how we direct that for sure. I actually, if, if I may, I, I think that that is a great observation. And um, I'd, I'd certainly like to give a shout out to my mother who recently passed away, who, who famously would say when I was a kid, your boredom is not my problem. <laughs> go figure it out, you know, go read a book, go, you know, go around the neighborhood, figure it out, entertain yourself, learn how to deal with these chunks of time. One of the things that kids should experience is a little more boredom, you know, that they, they should have these chunks of time where they're not being bombarded with images and input and all the rest of it and calm down. And it's true, honestly, for adults as well, right? I mean, we all need to step back and dial it down a little bit, you know, regardless of what, you know, electronically or paper or whatever you're doing, but, but that kind of long focused period of reading makes a huge difference. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, of course there's research that shows this concept of boredom, which doesn't sound like an exciting topic, but it's interesting when you look at it from the lens of, oh, this can generate some creativity. It can generate some high degrees of focus and productivity in children in terms of alternatives. And like you said, finding ways to give kids that time and then teach them to sort that out, much like Mama Lane did. 
Yeah, she she really was very clear about that, and uh, it's it's a good lesson. It, it it's one that has stuck with me, and uh, as hopefully maternal, you know, admonitions do. Yeah, I certainly hang on to many of the words of wisdom my mom gave me, and they were in that sort of deal with it mantra of that generation <laughs> too. So I hope it made me stronger, certainly. So interestingly, you're, I believe, a local school board member. Is that correct? And was on the school board for 10 years and chaired the last, you know, chaired the board the last two years. And then we moved down to New York in 2013. And we did that one stint in China uh, to the city of Guangzhou. And then we also took a year to do a second Fulbright at the University of York. And we as generous, Amy was the Fulbright scholar. I was just along for the ride. You wrote along so, the coattails. That's great. No, you kidding me? I'm, I'm very portable as a writer. Just give me a cafe. That's it. <laughs> I'm good to go. The remote access, right? It all worked out pretty well. It, and it, it was fascinating, you know, of course, to be in England in general. Then we came home in October of 2020. And here you are. So question for you about your experience 10 years as a board member you now have a microphone to speak into two board members what advice would you give them about cyber traps it's important to remind them that the cyber traps issues operate at multiple levels for them so from a policy and procedure perspective it's really important for a board working with its administration and with its school council to develop good acceptable use policies for the use of technology, social media, all the rest of that, that obviously you're going to have a different set for students than you would have for educators. And just, you know, I'll, I'll beat the drum a little bit on this, that the single most important policy that a school district can adopt is that educators will not engage in electronic communication with students without another adult on the conversation. Or it is a requirement that they use an archivable form of communication for everybody's protection. Students, educator, all the rest of that. It is important to constantly educate students and teachers and administrators on the various cyber traps that I write about. Version 3.0 of this book, when it comes out, will reorganize the cyber traps I work on into personal, professional, and criminal. So you can pick and choose whatever you think are the most important issues for your district. The last thing I'll say with respect to school board members is that they need to remember that they can fall into cyber traps as well. And most commonly, this is going to have to do with perhaps the inartful use of social media, saying things that are upsetting within the school community or dismissive or critical of a particular sector of the school community, unnecessarily controversial. Obviously, the First Amendment is wrapped up in all of this. And, you know, probably the school board has the highest level of First Amendment protection because they're politicians and then teachers and then students. But at the same time, as I say repeatedly to all of these groups, Free speech does not mean free from consequences. And I was just looking at some cases before we came on about school board members who got into, I'm not saying hot water, but created controversy with what they were saying on their Facebook page or on Twitter and things like that. So 
we're in a politicized state, but I think people should talk through these issues. I think boards should have trainings on what can go wrong and what kinds of things they want to think about. And I think that uh, the more of that they do, the better off everybody is. Wow, I love how you phrase that because it made me think about that recent Supreme Court case with the young lady yes. who was online upset about not making the varsity cheer team. And I wrote about that, yeah. Wow, I did too. So we want to, I want to talk to you more about that. So my whole message in, in what I wrote was very similar to what you just said in like a couple sentences, which is, yes, ultimately, if it's not on school grounds, it's not a disruption to orderly operations, a child can have a right to say things that might be very critical or harsh. The problem with that is that we're missing the whole point, which is this young lady someday, and hopefully she's successful, is going to have to face the fact that she's online everywhere being offensive about her school and is going to have to answer to that when she's trying to aspire to something else. And that, to me, is the greatest consequence. Well, and that was one of the reasons I wrote Cyber Traps for the Young, because I really wanted parents to start thinking about the education they need to give their children. And you know, schools obviously have a role in this, but the primary responsibility is on parents to not give their children devices that they're not mature enough to use properly. Now, look, kids are still gonna make mistakes, but you know, the longer you wait to give your child, particularly a smartphone, honestly, the better off your child will be. And nonetheless, as you probably are aware, the smartphone carrying percentage of elementary school students is nearly 50%. It's above 70 in middle school and like 98% in high schools. And these smartphones are the equivalent of having a CNN studio in your pocket. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the examples I used years ago was in like 2016 election, I think. Casey Hunt from MSNBC was doing a report from the New Hampshire primary, and somebody happened to take a photo of her doing that report. There was no camera person. She had put her smartphone up on the mantle of the Hanover Inn in Dartmouth and was broadcasting to the world using her smartphone. Every single child with a smartphone was then instantly on a par with MSNBC in terms of their broadcast reach. And you see this all the time. And this is what administrators and school boards really need to be aware of, is that all of these kids are capable of recording, audio, video, taking photographs, and you don't have time to evaluate whether or not that information is going to be distributed. It's gone. And right. so that's where the education piece comes in. That's where the policies and procedures come in so that you can hopefully develop a consensus within the school community about how these devices will be used. That's the goal. That is the goal because I think that balance of maintaining some level of expectation both at a political level and also helping kids and families more importantly, because I think you talked about the responsibility of families and parents, recognizing that kids are not cognitively developed enough to understand that when they convey a message that's inappropriate, there are, it's everywhere and, it, it, and you can never take it down. Well, I agree, Mike. One of the books that I, I put together is called Raising Cyberethical Kids. And the purpose of that book is to 
two things. Number one, to encourage conversations between parents and kids about how these devices should be used, but then also to get parents and kids thinking about agreeing to a family acceptable use policy. It's just a contractual agreement between the parents and the kids about how devices will be used, what the potential consequences are ahead of time if they're misused, and really what kinds of factors should be taken into account regarding the use of electronics broadly. And one of the things I like about that is it's not just about the kid's behavior, it's about the adult behavior too. What kind of role model are the adults in the household regarding the use of technology? One of the, the single biggest complaint by kids is that they play second fiddle to their parents' devices. And that's, that's a harm and a shame in and of itself. Of course. I love the way you talked about, you know, committing it to writing creates an accountability that I think is going to become larger than ourselves so that we are owning this. And, and so I think that's an interesting solution you present. It gives kids an opportunity to have agency in terms of how these rules are developed. And obviously, there's going to be age-appropriate differences, right? You're not going to turn over the keys to the Maserati to the seven-year-old, but you know they may have thoughts about what is appropriate. Sometimes they come up with worse punishments than the parents <laughs> would in terms of misuse. So there's always that. But I think that it, it strengthens the family relationship to have these conversations. It gives the kids, and this is something I stress all the time, it gives the kids an opportunity to demonstrate their own expertise and to contribute that to the family. Uh, one of the best ways to deal with kids and technology is to encourage them to be teachers so that you know there's some app that you're concerned your kid is using. Well, ask them to install it on your phone and help you set up an account. And by the way, make sure you have their login information as well until you're absolutely confident that they're responsible enough. But by bringing kids into that process, I think it makes them much, much more cooperative. It does, because I don't think they feel like they're complying. I feel like they they are experiencing being part of the decision-making process. Yeah. And that's empowering. Yeah. It's also a restoration of family, is, is what you're talking about, which is a, 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 as significant of a thing that I think is creating a rift right now because of the challenges of, of cyber traps. So. I think you're spot on. Absolutely true. Yeah. You know, look, we, we, it, is, it is literally a feature of these phones and of these apps for us to lose ourselves in them. You know, yeah. there was a great piece about how, you know, once the Supreme Court overturned bans on gambling with professional sports, that the sports world, you know, particularly the NFL on Super Bowl Sunday, rushed in because they want that engagement. They want to fire all of those endorphin receptors in your brain and, and just keep you hooked on their product. And it's $7 billion being bet just on this one day. That's peanuts compared to what Facebook is trying to do or you know, Twitter or whatever. So if you've got a product that is specifically designed to isolate us and, and to keep us absorbed, honestly, I do think families need to consciously work to overcome that. And this is one way to do it.
Great, great point. Is there anything else I didn't think to ask you that you'd like to share with my audience? Well, that's always a tricky That's question. an open-ended one. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Mike, I think that you've done a terrific job of, of covering the landscape and I appreciate the research that you've done. The Cybertrap series makes it sound like I'm some kind of Luddite. And, and I really don't want people to have that impression. I love the use of technology. I use it constantly myself. I think there's tremendous potential for it. But I guess I come to the idea of mindfulness, that the only way for this to be effective and for us to honestly continue to function as a society is for all of us to be more mindful about how and when we use technology and to try to get back to a better balance between our online world and our real world, our real friends. And hopefully the pandemic will subside and that will all be easier. And I think that's hugely important for us. So that's what I'd like to leave folks with. Yeah, balancing the use of it in a constructive way and understanding the challenges that get in the way. I think that's, that's a great point. Where nice. can people find you? Oh, well, if they can't find me, then there's something wrong. <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> right. Google Frederick so, Lane. So what I would recommend for people in, in kind of order of priority is cybertraps.com because you've got the podcast episodes there. Number two would be newsletter.cybertraps.com, which is my mostly weekly updates on all of these issues. The Cybertraps podcast is on Apple and every other platform you can think of. The books are on amazon.com and there are links on the websites. So uh, that should be a good start. And then all of them have contact information if anyone has any questions or wants to reach out. Yeah, and I'll make sure I linked everything you just mentioned in the show notes so that it's easy for people to click right on that and check you out. You've been so informative. I think this is a great message to get out to this audience and beyond. And I'm going to thank you for taking the time to share and impart the great knowledge you have about this subject. It was a real pleasure, Mike. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Love to have you back on, too. Anytime. I hope you enjoyed my podcast, Big Ideas and Small Windows, with my special guest, Frederick Lane. I can't wait to our next guest, Erica Garcia, who has over 21,000 Twitter followers. That's not an, an error. And you're going to get to hear all about how she achieved that high number and why so many people want to hear her tweets every day. Stay tuned next week.